0: You can't keep a good man down. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity. It is the bedrock of all preaching. It is mentioned 104 times at least in the New Testament. It is, without a doubt, the most prominent of all Bible doctrine. It is the Mount Everest of biblical history. No, it is the Mount Everest of all history. It is that which set apart him from every other religious leader that ever existed. Christ arose, and not only it is the crowning proof of the deity of our Savior, but it is the guarantee of our own resurrection. And I will tell you that the devil did his best to try to keep him in that grave. The devil did his best to try to subvert his message, and the devil did his best to keep him dead, but it didn't work because you can't keep a good man down. And so that's the message this morning. I'd like each of you to Uh, Join with me in prayer, and uh, I want you just to sit back. We're not going to be in any hurry today, and so if your roast is in the oven, turn it down a few degrees, and we're going to have a great time. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, the name of every name, that name upon which angels bow, and every knee shall someday bow, Lord, I thank you that we are here to proclaim the blessed gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ our victor, our champion. And God, today we pray that every heart we bless. Thank you, God, for this amazing, uh, epic moment in our church. Lord, really a, a whole paradigm shift, I'm sure, as we begin to look outward. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Acts chapter 2, if you would, please. Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, an amazing verse. Tucked in Peter's amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter's devastating failure was followed by a re-energizing. What did that? It was the resurrection that got inside of his soul, and he said, if Jesus can raise from the dead, then so can I. Why? Because you can't keep a good man down. Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. I want you to notice what that verse says. God hath raised him up. Now, Peter was a timid little guy that uh, was sitting by the fire there when Jesus was about ready to be crucified, and he didn't even have enough boldness to uh, speak out for Christ in uh, in the presence of a little servant girl. And yet here he is, standing in Jerusalem, preaching so boldly, and he was saying, "'You!' Each of you, each of you Jewish brothers of mine and sisters, you killed Jesus. Notice that little transitional phrase in verse 24, whom God raised up. Yes, you killed him, but God raised him up. And I want you to notice who did it. God did it. The greatest accreditation that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah is that God raised him up. Notice the last part of that verse, having loosed the pains of death. Now, that's a tremendous statement. And the key to that little statement is the word pains. It is actually a word that means birth pangs. And it's significant because birth pangs are temporary. But they result in something glorious. So get that into your mind. The, it says here, it was not possible, having loosed the pains of death, the birth pains of death. Yes, they were pains, but they were just temporary because out of it came the glorious resurrection. Yes, Jesus was down, but he was not out. And then notice the last part of that phrase, because. He is one of those if-then statements we've been talking about the last couple of weeks because God did this. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be holden of death. There's no way. No way death could hold Jesus in its icy grips. Not one. It's impossible. Why? Because you can't keep a good man down. Why? First of all, because he was too powerful. He was too powerful. Death could not handle Jesus because... He's just simply too powerful. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 4, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Now, Satan had and does have lots of power, but there's one power he does not have. He does not have the power of life. He only has the power of death. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He not only gave life he was life. The grave could not hold him. The stones could not stop him. The guards could not prevent him. Why? Because you can't keep a good man down. He was too powerful. Not only was he too powerful, but second of all, he was too purposeful. Too purposeful. Jesus just had to come out of that grave. Why? Because he had a purpose. The whole reason he came to earth was for a purpose. Everything he ever said was for a purpose. Everything he ever did was for a purpose. What was that purpose? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus said, Father, I've done as thou hast commanded me. His whole purpose was to bring salvation to the lost. That's why he said in John 14 and verse 19, because I live, you live. He didn't just raise up so that he could just be able to say, hey, I'm the champion. He rose up so that we could have eternal life. Death could not handle Jesus because he's too powerful. Death could not handle Jesus because he's too purposeful. That's why Paul said, don't you love it? I love the Holy Spirit just letting Paul just get wonderfully, uh, uh, gloriously uh, Christian sarcastic. First 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, Where is thy victory? He personifies death, and he mocks death. Hey, death, what happened to you, death? Hey, death, sorry, you lost one here. And uh, he did. He lost one. I mean, you got to love that apostolic trash-talking, don't you? Take that, death. He was scorning, he was taunting death. Yes, the resurrection assuredly did happen. Absolutely no way that it didn't. Now, skeptics have tried unsuccessfully for the last 2,000 years to disprove it. Century after century, they say this and they say that, and yet every time they dig a hole even deeper for themselves. I want you to listen to what Dr. Simon Greenleaf, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, a eminent, brilliant historian, the royal professor of law at Harvard University with a Jewish background, as you might imagine, with a name like Simon Greenleaf. But I want you to listen now. Here is a brilliant, highly esteemed law, a lawyer, a historian, uh, analyst. Here's what he said. There is more evidence for the historical fact, not just the biblical fact, although that's good enough for me. There is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection than just about any other event in history. Now, doubters have been trying to say that the death of Jesus and the resurrection didn't come, and they continue to do everything in their power to say that Jesus was in that tomb. But you can't keep a good man down. 2,000 years ago, the Roman governor; 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people decided that they were going to do this, and they were going to do that, and they were going to do this to assure that this Jesus or his followers didn't somehow take him out of the grave or whatever. I mean, they knew nobody could come back from the dead, but just in case, they were going to do everything in their power. And yet, and yet, they all the precautions they took, actually, it just blew up in their face because what they simply did was just make it so much more secure that the truth of the gospel and the resurrection was well known. Notice these five missteps of the skeptics as seen in the death of Jesus. Number one, blunder number one, an unmistakable group of fake trials. There were six distinct trials, three Roman and three Jewish. First of all, he was before Annas the high priest in John chapter 18. Then he was before Caiaphas in Matthew 26, and then he was before the Sanhedrin also in the latter part of Matthew 26, then even before Pilate in Matthew 27, before Herod in Luke 23, and then before Pilate again at the end of that same chapter. So I want you to get this, six trials, six, in the space of a few hours, (laughs) six. Not in the middle of the day, not after several weeks of announcements, no, in the middle of the night, six trials, three Roman, three Jewish The public display was so blatant, such anti-Christ biased, it was shameful. Nobody in that day mistook this for anything other than what it was, a complete sham. And 2,000 years later, any impartial historian looking back at what happened knows it was a railroad job, absolutely fake, egregious, outrageous. And it only confirms what we already know, that the trial of Jesus was nothing but a fraud. An unmistakable group of fake trials just blows up and it just secures us with the understanding that no, Jesus was railroaded. Blunder number one. Blunder number two, an undeniable form of death. Alexander the Great, the great Grecian world power leader, introduced crucifixion. And I mean to tell you that you can't think of a more gruesome and terrible death, but I will tell you the Romans found a way to perfect it. It was horrendous. It was not uncommon for some rich Roman to have a party and then have Christians on, a, on crosses around the party. Sometimes they would then light them on fire even to be torches for their uh, parties. Terrible. It's Terrible. Jesus was crucified, hung there for hours, not just some back little thing that happened this way or that way. Then he he was scourged. They beat him until his back was raw and laid open. They then took a spear and thrust it into his chest cavity, and blood just poured out like turning on a spigot. Get it? He was crucified. You can't think of a more gruesome and certain death. He was laid bare, his body, his entrails opened up. Blood was then poured out of his body just pint after pint. Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead. Now, had they used any other form, someone might have said, well, they might have been able to spin it and say, well, he really wasn't dead just unconscious. (laughs) Folks, people don't just come unconscious from crucifixion. They die. They don't live. (laughs) They die. Every one of them die. They don't live. They die. The undeniable form of death just made it so that in fact, he didn't just come alive in the grave and walk out. It didn't happen. He wasn't unconscious. He was dead, certifiably, undeniably dead. A backfire, another misstep, Blunder number three, an unescapable place of burial. Now, I know you English grammarians won't like that word, unescapable. You'll say, Pastor, it's inescapable. Okay, but it had to be part of my message, so it's unescapable for us today, an unescapable place of burial. I understand some of you folks uh, uh, type in your little comments while I'm going along, so uh, anyway, that's for those of you, uh, those, that kind of folks right there. But anyway, an unescapable place of burial, Mark chapter 16. He was buried in a solid mountain. They had to carve it out. It would take weeks, months to hew out a place big enough to put a body. It was solid rock. You couldn't come up from the bottom side. You couldn't come in from the back side. You couldn't come in from any side. It was a solid, completely hewn out Mausoleum. Not only that, it had a huge stone rolled in front of it. Now think about this. Do you think it possible that in 72 hours while he was in the grave, that a whole bunch of people, or let's just say the person in the grave who had gone through all of that crucifixion, somehow he had the ability to chisel out of a solid rock. There was no tools in there. Let's say there was a tools uh, confiscated and hid in the corner. One man that beat up somehow could get out of there in 72 hours or a whole bunch of people digging in from the back. Yeah, I'm sure that wouldn't have made any noise. No noise at all. Or No, nobody dug him out. It's a solid rock. In fact, not only that, but there was a big stone rolled in front Of the tomb, engineers have examined it and said, in order to cover the four and a half or five feet, or maybe even five and a half feet, so that you could walk in, that kind of a stone rolled in front would have weighed one and a half to two tons. And I will promise you, a small group of Baptist preachers did not roll that stone or help him escape out the backside, folks. You can't keep a good man down. Blunder. Number three, an unescapable place of death. Blunder number four, an unquestionably secure guard. Now, when you hear the word guard, I know some people have a misinformed idea of a guard. Some people think of a, you know, maybe a mall cop or something like that. Well, you need to know that when it says there was a guard around the tomb of Jesus, this was an elite, special 16-man special ops group, a force. We're talking uh, about a a, a, a rangers. We're talking about the Green Beret. We're talking about the seals of the day. 16 men who would all be there at the same time. They had four shifts of those 16 men. Four men would be placed immediately in front of the uh, stone there, four of them. So we're not talking about uh, just uh, you know run-of-the-mill person, you know, a security guard. We are talking about special ops force, four of them, right in front of the stone. Then twelve of them would be in a semicircle around the front of the stone. And if they had to sleep, they would uh, sleep with their heads towards the stone. Folks, Jesus was guarded unquestionably secure. Historian Paul Mayer who you may have seen on some of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, debates on TV with the skeptics versus Christians. He is a professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, a brilliant man, but he's also, praise God, a biblical literalist. Here's what he said, it was virtually impossible for anybody, any thief, even a large group, to be able to overcome them and to take and get into that tomb. Now, The secure guard only disproved the idea that a group of overzealous shepherds who had no fighting experience or ladies would come there and overcome these guards. No, easily seen, total fabrication. You can't keep a good man down. But there was a fifth blunder, a fifth misstep that the skeptics took, and that was an unequivocal public seal, an unequivocal public seal. And so they would hew out this tomb, solid rock. They would place the deceased in there. Well, This was for a, a very notable person. Then they would roll that stone in front of there. They didn't want anybody to come through. But Of course, in that day, they just didn't want people to take all any uh, riches that were maybe buried with that rich person. The tomb would be, in, uh, in, uh, would be inspected. Then they would roll the stone there. Then they would have the guard there. And then on top of all of that, They would take these uh, sealing clay uh, plasters and they would put on either side of the stone and then across from one plaster uh, clay to the other, they would stretch a cord and then fastened. At the fastening point, they would then take the seal of the Roman government, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. These seals would be, in, would be stamped in there, and that cord would be embedded into that soft clay. And so here it is. We're talking about a tomb. We're talking about out of a solid rock. We're talking about a stone rolled and froze in place that weighed several tons. We're talking about a guard, a, a security guard that were like the special ops force. Then we're talking about a seal on this. No, in spite of all... The safeguards that the devil put on that. The fact is, Jesus did come back from the from the grave, and he showed us that you can't keep a good man down. These five precautions only serve to validate the fact that Jesus is in fact Lord and God. Only validate for us again, once and again, that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely true. Another thought: if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then for sure, absolutely, it would have been a terrible thing to do at Jerusalem because that would have been the last place Christianity would have started because everybody would have been able to go there and see, no, he's, uh, it's not true. That grave is still full or he was never placed in there. No. Uh, it was started in Jerusalem, the last place that anybody could have ever imagined it would have started. No, it's the best place because it just showed that the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ is, in fact, real. Now, I want you to notice something. This crucifixion of Jesus, the uh, the way that he was buried, and the resurrection, all that happened, and all the false teachers, had they known what was what was really going to happen, they wouldn't have done that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 8, listen to this. You know, the devil doesn't know what's coming, and I can tell you the fact that it is this morning, and he's a smart one, but uh, he's a dumb devil, according to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8, for which none of the princes of this world knew. I'm glad that the princes of this world aren't omniscient, and neither is the devil. For had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known it, they wouldn't have hewn out a solid rock because that just proved he didn't escape. Had they known it, they wouldn't have put a rock in front of it because that just showed he didn't get out on his own. Had they known, they wouldn't have put a guard there. Had they known, they wouldn't have had it sealed. Now missteps, blunders all along the way, which none of the princes of this world knew. Had they known it, they wouldn't have crucified the lord of glory you can't keep a good man down there's a great gospel song that says the same he sa- <clears throat> he said goodbye to the angels of heaven and he came to earth as a common man he taught us how we could love one another and there was healing <coughs> in his hands there were those who be- <coughs> excuse me there were those who believed and followed him there were those who wanted him dead They thought the grave would silence him forever, but they found out instead. You can close your eyes. You can say it's a lie. You can stick your head in the sand, and you can turn away and try to explain. He was just another man. When they nailed him to the cross by his hands and his feet, and they put him in the ground, three days later, everybody found out. You can't. No, you can't keep a good man down. You can't keep a good man down. You can say you don't believe it, but it doesn't change a thing. I can change you take you to the hill where they hung him on a tree. I can take you to the empty tomb. I can tell you he's alive because he lives in me. Now we've had a glorious morning. We have praised the Lord. We have given our honor to God, all glory to him. We have sung together. We've danced a little bit uh, in the Lord. and I'm sure I just broke the internet this morning with the pastor's polka. But I will tell you Before we close, there is one important question we all need to consider, and that is this. Who are you going to entrust with your death? Who are you going to entrust with your death? Today, everybody's worried about the coronavirus. Everybody's worried about the coronavirus and wondering what's going to happen next. But I will tell you, it's a terrible thing. But even though it's a terrible thing, it's a uh, they, they, you somehow get the idea that somehow people are thinking, oh, we're not going uh, to die of Corona as though they're not going to die. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. If Corona doesn't get me, heart disease is going to get me. If heart disease doesn't get me, cancer is going to get me. Did you know that the statistics now on death, did you know that they're running at 100%? Did you know that? Did you know that it's a proven fact that 10 out of 10 people die? <laughs> if it's not COVID, It is uh, cancer or something else. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. And that's the question I ask with you here this morning is the question, who will we entrust with our life? I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. The fact is, this morning, there is a judgment to face. Now, Folks, there's a great reason to be a Christian, and that is it secures our eternity. Hallelujah. It, as that verse says, when I stand before God at the judgment, I want to know and thank God that Christ is my Savior. But the other question I want to ask is this. Not only who am I going to trust with my death, but who am I going to trust with my life? I'm thankful that this morning the treasure of the gospel is placed in such a vessel as this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. I love that, don't you? The gospel is a treasure, and God puts it in an earthen, a dirt old bunch of clay clumped together. That's me. That's you. The gospel is a treasure in an earthen vessel. and Sometimes these vessels get broken, and sometimes they get all messed up. As Paul said in verse 9, they get cast down, but hallelujah, not destroyed, because you can't keep a good man down. Back in the day in the Roman Empire, a Roman gladiator who was knocked down in battle would be lying there on the ground or kneeling there in the ground. And from the emperor, and only from the emperor would come the thumbs up, you live, or thumbs down, you die. Well, guess what? Our king, our emperor has looked at us and said, though you're down, you live because you can't keep. A good man down. I want to read to you a wonderful uh, reminder. uh, Our dear friend Eugene Hayden, who's in heaven, and Brother Hayden, I just know you're watching these services from a glorious heavenly grandstand, but I remember one of the services we had was a glorious service, and he uh, gave this, and I want to give it to you. It's called A Soldier in the Army of God because you can't keep a good man down. I am a soldier in the army of my God. The Lord Jesus Christ is my commanding officer. The Holy Bible is my code of conduct. Faith, prayer, and the word are my weapons of warfare. I have been taught by the Holy Spirit, trained by experience, tried by adversity, and tested by fire. I am a volunteer in this army, and I'm enlisted for eternity. I will neither retire in this army at the rapture or die in this army, but I will not get out, sell out, or be talked out or pushed out. I am faithful, reliable, capable, and dependable. If God needs me, I'm there. If he needs me to teach Sunday school or teach children, work with youth, help adults, or just sit there and learn, he can use me because I am there. I'm a soldier. I'm not a baby. I don't need to be pampered, petted, primed up, pumped up, picked up, or peppered up. I'm a soldier. No one has to call me, remind me, write me, visit me, entice me, or lure me. I am a soldier. I am not a wimp. I'm in my place saluting my king, obeying his orders, praising his name, and building his kingdom. No one has to send me flowers or gifts or food or cards or candy or give me handouts. I don't need to be cuddled or cradled or cared for or catered to. I am committed I cannot have my feelings hurt bad enough to turn me around. I cannot be discouraged enough to turn me aside. I cannot lose enough to cause me to quit. When Jesus called me into this army, I had nothing. And If I end up with nothing, I'm still come out even. I win because God supplies all my needs. I am more than a conqueror. I will always triumph. I can do all things through Christ. Devils cannot defeat me, people cannot disillusion me, weather cannot weary me, sickness cannot stop me, battles cannot beat me, money cannot buy me, governments cannot silence me, amen. Hell cannot handle me, I am a soldier, even death cannot destroy me, for when my commander calls me from this battlefield, he will promote me to a captain, then bring me back to rule this world with him. Why? Because you can't keep a good man down. And I am good and you are good. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you'd say, well, boy, that sounds kind of proud. No, I'm not good because I'm good. I'm good because the one who is good has given me his goodness. And If you ask Jesus as your savior, you are a good person too. Micah 7 and verse 8 says, Rejoice not against me. Oh, can't you see that prophet Micah, that one who looked down heaven's telescope to a place called Bethlehem where a savior would be born. uh, Micah stood up and preached to those wonderful Jewish people and he said, Rejoice not against me, O enemy. And he had enemies. When I fall, I shall arise. David in Psalm 37 verse 24, though he fall, a good man, though he fall. Shall not utterly be cast down. He comes back, a good man comes back. And one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Proverbs 24 and verse 16, for a just man, a good man, I've been made just by the wonderful righteousness of Christ. For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. You can't keep a good man down. And I have a message to America. I have a message to our good president. We're going to make it. I have a message to all those frontline workers. God bless you. We're going to make it. I have a message to the children of God, the church of God. We're going to make it. And though everything would come against us at this moment, there's never, I, I can't think of a darker hour for our country. I can't think of a darker hour for the church and everything coming against it. But I want you to know God wins. People say, well, the church, they're not meeting. Well, I'll tell you something else. The bars aren't meeting either, and the casinos aren't meeting either, and at least we get the broadcast. They're not broadcasting what they're doing. Hallelujah. God wins. God wins. You know, it's widely accepted that the Japanese have created the best swords in the world, the katana sumurai sword. These weapons are absolutely amazing. But to create these weapons, the ancient Japanese master sword makers knew they had to do quite a, a lot of work, too brittle, too hard, so that the edge is absolutely sharp and they would break, too soft, and they couldn't cut through the armor of their opponents. And so what they learned to do was to take multiple sheets of soft steel, combining it with the hard steel. They would then pound it together and make it uh, uh, mend together. It is said that 33,000 paper-thin laminations of hard and soft metal and then forged with a very precise recipe of hot treatment. Well, then they came up with this sword, the most treasured and amazing swords of all. I want you to know that our master... Our God is the master swordsman, and in his forging hand, the hard steel of the word of God, forged with the soft steel of absolute dependence upon God, forged together in the fiery trials, and that's what's going on right now. All of us are holding on to the promises of God, those sharp edges with one moment, and in our other hand, we're just simply saying, God, I humbly bow to you. And we're being forged, and as a church, we're being forged as never before. And now, thank God, through it all, He lives because you can't keep a good man down. I want you to know something this morning that no matter where you are and no matter what's going on in your life, God wins, and so will you. We'll make it through this. We're going to get through it. By God's grace, it's been forging time. But guess what? After the fire comes that sword, that amazing, beautiful feature that only a master can put together.